Welcome to the 66th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a Sports Illustrated senior writer. Wait, no. My name is Catherine Perlman, and I'm actually Jeff's wife. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, the founder of The Family Coach, and the author of Ignore It, How Selectively Looking the Other Way Can Decrease Behavioral Problems and Increase Parenting Satisfaction. And today, just for a week, we're doing something different on Two Writers Slinging Yang. Jeff's new book about the USFL, Football for a Buck, is out in a few days, and today I'm going to talk to him about the process of writing, reporting, piecing together a biography. This book was a passion project for Jeff, one that he dreamed about in his high school English class. In the name of transparency, while we are married, Jeff doesn't know any of the questions ahead of time. It's just two married writers sitting down for a chat right now on Two Writers Slinging Yang. Well, welcome to your own podcast. <laughs> Thank you. It's nice for you to be here with me. It's a little weird, and you know, I, I had some debate about this. I still do. I can't tell if this is like I'm Fonzie jumping over the shark tank, and it's like really self-indulgent to do it about, you know, talk writing yourself. And I said, I don't think it is self-indulgent because I think there are people who might be interested in your perspective and it is your very own podcast, so you can do what you want. True. This will be a one-time thing, I promise. Maybe you'll do it for the next book. Mm, probably not. All right. Well, let's get to it. Okay. Your eighth book, Football... I've seen none of your questions, I just want to say. Yeah. Okay. So I can ask you anything? Yeah, of course. All righty. Um, your eighth book, Football for a Buck or for a Dollar, as my grandma would say. Uh, Football for a Buck is being released on September 11th. This book has been in the works for longer than any of your other books in a way. In fact, it almost didn't get written. So, can you tell me about why this book was so important to you and why you fought for it? First of all, I, I want to say, I feel like right now at this point, I'm going to take a second and splice in the voice message your grandma left for me this morning. <laughs> which is the best. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. It's Laura Shapiro. I opened the local paper this morning, and it was very exciting to see a photograph of the cover of your book and a wonderful write-up, Football for a Dollar. That was really exciting. Congratulations. It looked really good, and I think you're going to sell a lot of the books. So call me. Bye-bye. She doesn't understand. So Catherine's grandma turns 99 this year. And there are little things she misses, even though she's super, super sharp. Like she, you said, she can't understand that the book is called Football for a Buck. Yeah, she just calls it Football for a Dollar. But she um, is amazing. And she was super proud because you were in the Palm Beach Post today. I was in the Palm Beach Post. Um, yeah, so tell me about how this book came to be written. All right. So basically, when I was a, uh, when I was a kid... In growing up in Mayo Pack, New York, you're one of the few people who's been to the mean streets of Mayo Pack. It's not that mean. No. I I never got uh, Sports Illustrated because it was the expensive magazine and no one in my house cared about sports except me. So I got Sport Magazine, but I'd go to the Mayo Pack Library when I could and read Sports Illustrated. And I remember going there and seeing the cover of Herschel Walker in a New Jersey General's uniform and just being like blown away. But why? What was blown away? Because when you're a kid... Everything seems really big and colorful. And mm -hmm. like, it's kind of how people, I feel like when you're young, like you pick, why am I a Hall & Oates fan? You know, it's because I remember staring at, yeah, right. I remember staring at the H2O album that I bought for my brother for his birthday, you know? And like something about the album cover and the water dripping down the cover, like just kind of, you know, blew my mind or something. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing Herschel Walker and he was like this kind of godlike figure in college football and he was wearing his brand new General's jersey. And there was like, 
everything was new and cool and unique. And I remember opening the, uh, I really do, like I actually remember this, it's not just like a memory of a memory, opening to the inside of the magazine and all the USFL helmets and the helmets were insane. It was like the Denver Gold was just blowing up sun and then the Birmingham Stags was horse and just on and on. And that really made me a USFL fan from the beginning. I was like, I'm gonna stick with this league. And then you fast forward to 1990 and I was a senior in high school, Mayo Pack High School. And uh, I had a teacher named Mr. Height and he was very into writing. Like the of all the teachers I've ever had, he was the most into writing. But then you already knew you wanted to be a writer. I mean, I was, I think so. Yeah, I would say yes. I mean, I was, I was like a sports editor of my high school paper. That's how I got the ladies. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, never kissed a girl in high school. And um, his senior project was a paper of twenty pages. And I said, I want to write about the downfall of the United States Football League. And I remember he was like, "You really want to write about that?" And I was like, "Yeah." And uh, so he assigned it, and I ended up handing in 40 pages. I mean, I don't even know what the hell possessed me. And I remember calling the USFL offices. That, so I had a, uh, like the, one of the sporting news used to do these handbooks, and on the back, it had a phone number to reach the USFL. And I called the USFL, it was in 1990, the league hasn't existed since 19, the lawsuit in 86. And I remember getting an answering machine. Thank you for calling the USFL, blah, blah, blah. And I left multiple messages. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm a Mailpack High School, and, uh, I'm sure it was an answering machine in an empty building or someone's home. It was probably an answering machine in someone's like home. And they just kept the number for a while in case any business inquires. Never heard back, got a B plus in the paper. It's always felt haunted by the USFL. And then uh, I couldn't get a book deal. Why? Why couldn't you get a book deal? Because nobody thought it would sell. Like I, for years I wanted to write this and nobody thought it would sell. And there was not enough people realize, number one, I don't think people realized what the USFL was in publishing well also that people who know it loved it like it's sort of this special memory that people had from early on in their years and but that so, doesn't mean it's a book right well that's that's the thing I was going to ask you you know you have all these great ideas or anyone has these great ideas for a book and it, it might be a really fabulous interesting book but if no one's going to buy it or no you know you can't market it then no one you know no publisher is going to have it yeah. so how what was the process for how this came to actually get picked by a publisher. I mean, so that's that's actually true. Like, uh, there are a million people who uh, want to write a book and they have a book idea and they say, I, I know, I have a book I want to write. And I've had a million athletes say, I really want to write a book. And it could be some defensive lineman from the Dallas Cowboys 30 years ago who was kind of obscure. And you're like, that's great that you want to write a book. But if you want the book to sell, it's going to be really hard, you know? And so this book, I mean, if you look at my books, this is my eighth book. The first seven were all mainstream topics, right? They all came with fan bases. They didn't all sell. Like five of the seven sold really well. Two did not sell really well, the Clemens and the Mons books. They still came with like instant audiences. You know, like Barry Bonds was a giant icon and a baseball. So like there was not, this is, this is a tough one. It's like, what's the audience? Who's the audience? And so I, so I could never, I mean, my agent told me repeatedly, nobody was going to bite. Nobody was biting. Nobody was biting. There was an expletive used, am I right? Yeah, he said, I mean, nobody wants a fucking USFL book. That was the thing, because I kept bugging him about it. Jeff, nobody wants a fucking USFL book. And this is what happened. I was negotiating for the Brett Favre book, a book I didn't really want to write, but I thought maybe it could get me a USFL deal. And in fact, I think we sent out the Favre book and the USFL proposal. Sent out a double proposal, Favre and USFL, nobody would bite. And I said to my, that's when I said to my agent, what about the USFL? He's like, nobody wants a fucking USFL book. But I got a couple of offers on uh, Brett Favre. So I basically, uh, 
I basically called, Hud Mifflin was one of the people that offered a deal. And I said, would you give me a little less money and let me write the USFL book? I know this is a good book. And Susan Canavan, the editor there, um, did. And, and I loved writing the Favre book. That's a funny thing. I, the Favre book to me was just going to be this thing to get to the USFL. And I actually really loved it. But it's funny because you were willing to take a cut in money because it just was such like a love for you. So there's a passion. And, and also you believed it. You believed it could sell. You believed that you had a good book. Even nobody, I've never made less money on a book. This is my eighth book and it's the lowest paid I ever was for a yeah. book. I just, um, I just really believed in it. And I thought I was in a position where I could maybe, I was just going to take a shot. You know, I haven't taken, my books haven't been the most risky subjects. Yeah. I bust my ass on them all. I work hard. They're all labors of love to varying degrees. But the US of L, I just really wanted to write it. So I just decided to hell with it. I'm going to go with it. And then what happened that really, so they gave me a deal and I had one year to write it. I usually have two to three years for a book. I had one year to write US of L. Um, I interviewed like 430 people. It was just nonstop, dizzying from day one, nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. And then what happened in the process was freaking Donald Trump ran for president and won. Right. When you proposed this book over and over and over again, never in a million years at that time, would you have thought it would be even be possibility that he would run for president no. and then become president? I know I'm going to be asked and people are going to be like, oh, here's a book where you, you know, you're bashing on Trump. And I'm like, I, he, if he's bashed on in this book or if he comes off negative in this book, it's because he ruined the US of L. It's not because I think he's a lousy president. Right. This has nothing to do with his presidency, although there's a lot of foreshadowing in this book about what you would see later on. Mm -hmm. But we'll come back to that. Okay. So one thing you said earlier that you uh, were in high school and you called like, you know, some offices of the USFL. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really admire about you is that you have just balls. Like you are not afraid to like call. I am afraid. I just do it. Well, okay. Well, fine. So you're willing to like push past fear and you know, just put yourself out there for total embarrassment, humiliation, getting yelled at, like anything, for getting a source or a story or. I thought you were going to mention that I in uh, junior high and high school, I ran for student buck. I ran for student government. No exaggeration. I was in junior high and high school six years. I ran five times and never won. Right. So this to me is is really your character because. I don't know anybody else who, you know, you run for president once, you don't make it. Maybe you wait two years, you try again. Or you run for treasurer and then you try again for president. But to run five times for president and five times to fail and then get back up and do it again. I mean, it's truly amazing. But I really think that that's why your books are so good. It's really for you about the digging and the hunt. So I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, what it is about that that's so exciting for you, how you kind of push past those nerves of knocking on someone's door or, you know, making a call that potentially could go badly. Like what inspires you to do that? How do you push through some of the fear? Um, and how did that play out in this book? So I feel like the biggest myth is that you're just not afraid. People be like, you're just not afraid to do it. And that's not true. And that's not true at all. Actually, I'm, I'm always afraid to knock on doors of strange people. I don't even like, I find calling people scary, you know, like I hate that moment where someone doesn't know who you are and you're calling and you have that 10 second window to explain who you are. Oh, hey, my name is Jeff Perlman. Uh, I got your number from so-and-so. That's always at least helpful. But like, you know, I'm working on a book about the USFL. I used to write for Sports Illustrated. Like you have that 10 second window, right? I hate it. Every time I'm doing a call, I hate it. But I don't really know any other way to do it. You know, and it's like, do you want to be a writer or do you not want to be a writer? You know, do you yeah, want to? Yeah, but I think you get a thrill, an absolute thrill by uncovering some guy who sure. nobody's found, 
in the middle of nowhere that you had to go, you know, to the totally middle school yearbook and talk to the principal and, mm-hmm. you know, all the, the neighbors nuggets. and all the, all those nuggets. Yeah. So I feel like you, you love those things and maybe that's part of the reason you can push through, you know, because you see the value in it so much. Things that are worth it are hard. I actually think that's true. Like things that are worth it are generally hard. You know, it's, there are a million writers out there. Do you just want to be another writer? Or do you want to be really good? And do you want to be the guy who's known? I take a ton of pride in the number of interviews I do. It's my number, it's become my calling card in a lot of ways, you know, like, there'll be, you're like, oh, you're like, how many people do you interview for this book? I freaking love that, like I do. Yeah. And I, it's like a collection to me. It actually is like a collection. Like, I love printing out the interviews, writing down all the interviews and counting them every now and then and double checking, oh, I'm up to 100, I'm up to 200, I'm up to 300. I love that stuff. Like, to me, Number one, it feels really thorough. Number two, it gives you great information, you know? Well, I think it's those little tiny details in the books that give the reader an experience. You know, it's like, it's not like you're just reading it, something that was in the newspaper. You know, you're really hearing like the color of the situation and the neighborhood and the people and the families and just these crazy, you've heard crazy stories from people that you wouldn't have uncovered had you not dug deep like that. Yeah, but it's even more than that. To me, it's like, um, I always think like the difference between good and really, really good is like, was he drinking a soda or was he drinking a Diet Coke that was kind of flat? If you're the reporter can find out that he was drinking a Diet Coke that was kind of flat, it takes it to the next level. You know, did he live in San Francisco or can you give me the exact street, the neighborhood, what it was like? Like the specifics, the hyper specifics. And you, we've talked about this a lot. Like. You can call the vast majority of interviews I do for a book like this, I'm getting zero, one, or two useful pieces of information from, right? It's not like I'm getting a million. You interview 430 people, most people are not giving you great information. But if they can give you one little thing, if you can find out what the locker room in Denver smelled like on game day, right? Or like there was someone at the USFL, he just told me, I mean, this is crude, but like, there's a guy with the Oakland Invaders. He told me a story about the leader of the team's Bible study having anal sex with a hooker outside a railing, on top of a railing at the uh, team hotel, team motel, right? It's, that was all I got from this guy, right? A one detail. But that's a great, raw, gritty detail that made it worth the call. But also, I feel like for you, sometimes that one detail leads to the next detail, leads yeah. to, you know, to the bigger story, you know? Mm-hmm. And also, some people who talk to you, you make them so comfortable. They talk to you, they're like, you know, mention something off the cuff, they don't even think it's even relevant. Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, you pretend like it's no big deal, and then you're like, oh my gosh, you had a child. Because not, I'm not lying to anyone, you know, like. No, but I'm saying you won't make like a big scene of it all, mm-hmm. and then you'll be leaving there, and you'll call me and be like, you won't believe Actually, this. you said something that's really true, that's interesting, which is, it's like, uh, it's like little pieces of information lead to little pieces, other pieces of information lead to bigger inf- piece of information. The other thing is, so you call, you call the, the third string quarterback from the Denver Gold, and he tells you two things, right? But maybe one of those things is that like, he used to, his roommate for three weeks was Bob Smith. Well, then you call Bob Smith, and you say, yeah, I just talked to Craig Jones, and he said you guys are roomed together. Oh man, he told you that? Did he tell you about the time, blah, 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 blah. There are a million examples through the books I've written of like, some guy saying something small and sort of that seemed like nothing, like you just said, and it becomes big. And the other thing is that people don't, I think writers get as they go along in this business, like everything is about finding the little and making it big. Like 
There have been a million things written about the U.S. of how Jim Kelly started there, Steve Young started there, Herschel Walker, blah, blah, blah. To me, it's more about like, why do the kicker for the Michigan Panthers wear different color socks? You know, or like, there was a guy in the San Antonio Gunslingers who was put on the injured list for slamming his, it's my podcast, for slamming his dick in a trunk, right? <laughs> like, I want to know all about that. So I will call everyone and find out all the details about that and try to find out what happened and why it happened. And again, that leads you to one person, another person, another person. And the other thing is, people take you more seriously if you can say, oh, by the way, I talked to so-and-so and he said this. Right. So the more, name dropping is totally fair in journalism. I don't do it. You know, I hate name dropping in real life. Well, you wouldn't name drop to another journalist. You would name drop, yes. if, you know, to let someone know, hey, you know, I spoke to a friend of yes. yours, you know, like that. But also, um, I think that once someone knows you've heard a story, like they don't want to put the story out there. Oh, but yeah. once you've heard it, oh, well, now let me tell you all about it. One of the greatest gateways ever in my career was when I was working on the Cowboys book, Boys Will Be Boys. And they had a defensive back named Scott Case. He, he was only a Cowboy for a year, I think. He'd been an Atlanta Falcon. And at one point he said to me, has anyone told you about Charles Haley and his dick? And I said, well, I mean, not really. You know, you're kind of like, no, not really. He's like, he's like, man, I'm sitting in, my, in the team meeting one time and Charles Haley tells me to turn around and has his penis extended over his desk. It's an abridged version of the story. But once you have that, you can say to other people, yeah, so I was talking to Scott Case about Charles Haley and his kind of flashing his penis. Oh man, he told you that story. Well, let me tell you this story. Exactly. So it all just like comes off. It all starts with one, you know? It's like um, I had people telling me with Walter Payton that he had a mistress for years. But it was like one person who gave me a specific detail about it that just all of a sudden I could get everyone oh, to talk. Oh, incredible person. Credible. Once yeah. a credible person says to you, blah, 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 then you can go to other people and say, I know. I, yeah, I was talking. Oh, yeah. Or I even know. You may not even use the guy's name. You, you can, And you say it very matter-of-factly. It's not misleading because it is matter. You say, so when Walter had his, you know, Walter met blah, blah, blah name in 72. I know he was still blah, blah, blah. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. But I also think like the way you ask something really influences how a person answers and how they respond. When I used to interview kids, you know, for uh, the homeless shelter and, and we had to ask them about drugs. And when I used to say, you know, do you do drugs? What do you think everybody said? Right, no. no, of course. When I say, when was the last time you smoked pot? They're like, oh, like probably mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago or the last time you, you drank, oh, at a wedding, but at least they put it out there. So how do you feel like you have learned to, you know, ask questions to get people to talk? I mean, the most important thing is it has to be as conversational as possible. And um, you have to do your research beforehand. You don't get that many bullets, so you can't waste them. So like, if you're interviewing Dak Prescott, the Cowboys quarterback, do you know that was a Cowboys starting quarterback? No. I don't think so. It's okay. If you're interviewing Dak Prescott, like- um, It's a good name though. It's a very good name. You, you need to know, you're not gonna ask him how old he is, where he went to college. You're not gonna waste that stuff. Where he's from. Right. Well, it's two things. Number one, you're wasting your time asking those questions, but number two, you're showing this guy you're not serious about it. You're showing him you didn't do any research at all. So like, if I'm Dak Prescott, quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, and you're saying, let me start with how old are you? That's it, you just lost it, right? Now, if you wanna win it, you do the exact opposite. You say, oh, so you played, um, you find any commonality you can find. So it's like, uh, you find out Dak Prescott, great example, Dak Prescott is really good friends with um, Dylan Favre, Brett Favre's nephew, who I am friendly with, right? So if I were interviewing Dak Prescott right now, 
I would bring up Dylan Favre immediately. I'd be like, hey, I'm friends with Dylan Favre. Do you know you know Dylan, right? Ah, blah, blah, blah. Oh yeah, you know, son Xander, blah, blah, blah. Like you sort of like, you you have a connection. As much of a connection. I always say the best example is when I did a profile, this is years ago now, J.D. Drew when he was with the Boston Red Sox and um, Passion of the Christ had just come out. And I knew J.D. Drew was a devout, devout Christian, which I'm not, and that he would see that movie. Before I went to interview J.D. Drew, I went to see Passion of Christ. First thing I said to him after, you know, hey, how's it going, man? Do you see, uh, do you see I just saw Passion the <laughs> other day. He's like, oh, man, what'd you think of that? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, anyway, you can open up doors. Yeah, make a connection. Make a connection. Show that, really, the, the main thing is to show that you're interested in them. And you're not just some other hack who's like, if you can separate yourself from the millions of like TV reporters and people who don't know what they're doing, I think they, even if it's unspoken, sort of, they acknowledge appreciate it, yeah. yeah, or acknowledge that at least you're legit. So one thing I wanted to talk about is that there's a certain roller coaster ride that comes with uh, writing a book, promoting a book, and having the book come out. You know, it starts from when you find out you got the deal till you know months after the book comes out, and you kind of wrap up the major PR. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about now, you, you know, this is your eighth cycle. Like you, you, we can, I can kind of predict month by month, day by day, what's going to happen. But tell me a little bit about what you see as, you know, the ride, where you are in, in, the, in, in that process right now and, and how you expect it to go. It's very hard. It's, it's, it's hard. I mean, uh, so, we, you know, last night I was lying in bed and I was just really like, ugh. God, I hate this. You know, like, this sucks. I hate this. It's so self-indulgent. And all you do is talk about your stuff. And it's um, it's so weird because, like, the book writing process, it's my favorite quote, favorite thought ever on is from Lee Montville when he said, it's just so unnatural that you're in a cave for two years and you come out to see the light for two weeks. You know, he's like, that's what a book is. And it really is. It really is. That's what it is. You're in a cave for two weeks and you come out. And for two weeks, starting around now, because my books come out in in a couple of days or 10 days, you're in this, whatever the spotlight is for a book, you know, like you're doing as much TV as you can, radio, you're talking about it nonstop. People are asking quite the same questions over and over and over again. And you're, I know I am ridiculously lucky to be in the position that very few authors actually get to be in, which is you write books that people buy and that people have you on to talk about, you know, like that's a freaking, it's ridiculous, you know, it's like kind of a, it's like a dream come true. But, it's draining and there's a lot of self-doubt. I don't know how the book is gonna sell. That drives me crazy. I mean, you, when your book came out, how many times a day were you checking Amazon to see what your ranking was? Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, you need your book to, yeah, what do you mean? <laughs> what? <laughs> refresh, refresh. Right. Um, no, but I mean, I, look, you, you, you work on a book two years, let's mm-hmm. say, you know, from the time you get the deal to the time you really hand it in and it's pretty much done. Let's say it's two, two and a half years. That's a long work product right there mm-hmm. that you've worked on by yourself. Mm-hmm. And then it comes out. You want it to do well. This is your baby. You care about this thing. You love this thing. You've done nothing but this book for two and a half years. And so that's a lot of pressure to, you know, have it be well received. It's very stressful. It's like you want it to do well. You want to put yourself out there, but it's scary putting yourself out there. I feel like I've seen you go from Book writing is the best thing ever. Book writing, I love my life. I love my job. Right. When you get a good nugget or you find somebody who couldn't be found, you're like on top of the world, mm-hmm. right? And then there are days where, you know, you're transcribing your 80th hour of tape and you're like, I'm not going to make it. Like, I don't think I could do it. 
And then- Why can't I just be a barista? Just <laughs> yeah. a barista. But then, you know, the excitement starts now where it's starting to come out, but it, there's also anxiety. Don't you feel like some level of anxiety? I don't really feel it yet, but I do. It's definitely there. And um, What do you worry about? Shoot, man, I worry about everything. I worry about errors in the book, obviously. Mm-hmm. I worry about, I mean, because that's a lot of words. And especially when you're writing about stuff that happened so long ago. That you weren't there for. Sure, wasn't there for. But other people and were. Tra- you have to trust people's memories, you know, and you have to use your judgment to trust people's memories. Certainly worry about that. I worry about, I worry about it not selling. I worry about it just, like, you do work two years on a thing. So for it to come and go and not even be noticed. Yeah. Would suck, you know? Um, I mean, I guess those are my main concerns. It's just... You know what, so the promotional part of it is like really weird. It's super weird because it's changed so much when I entered. All of a sudden I'm an old man. All of a sudden, first of all, people are saying, mm-hmm. I said this to you the other day. I've had a couple of people now say, man, I gr- I've grown up reading you, right? And that that is meant only as a compliment. And I always think, oh fuck, really, what? Like what, how'd that happen? But like when I started, when I wrote The Bad Guys One, right? That came out in I think 2003. 2003 mm-hmm. it was the year our daughter was born and um, so what you wanted from PR you wanted to get a review in the New York Times if you could or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal you wanted to be on as much sports radio as you could be hopefully a little TV but it really wasn't in your head and maybe someone would write a profile on it right that was it like that was it that was promoting a book I still have my binder from that year like I did a photo album for that year and it's like the six articles written about the bad guys won. Yeah. And the book actually became a bestseller, right? And that was the, the PR deal. Nowadays, as you know, and as we talk about all the time, it's, and this sounds like, oh, old man complaining about, like, like it's social media galore. It is nonstop. Well, it's it also website galore. I mean, the, the, the number of relevant websites in 2003 was tiny to me, compared to now. podcasts are the thing now where it's mm-hmm. like, holy shit, there's so many podcasts you could appear on which is great. It's all great. It all helps a book. It's all great. I still don't know what makes a book sell versus what doesn't. I have some ideas. Like I, The weirdest thing, and this is not a bashing of Sports Illustrated at all, 0%. The value of a print excerpt, which for me has meant Sports Illustrated, from then to now has just plummeted. Yeah. It has plummeted because the number one thing you want is a link going directly from well, your excerpt to the Amazon page. That's what you need. So like... First of all, the number of eyeballs that are on print versus what's yeah. online is, is smaller. Of course. But second of all, someone might read something in print and they're like, oh, that sounds good. Right. But then I'll they got to remember to get it. Yeah, exactly. But, but if, it, it's, if it's online, they could just link and click through and buy it right then. I just think, like, think how crazy it is. I had Sports Illustrated excerpted on the cover of the Walter Payton, right? And I that was like the hugest thing for me. It was just phenomenal. Right? It, was it was a first, great cover. It was a great cover. And it was the first time my name was on the cover of the magazine because when I was writing there, they didn't do that. And it was like, it was this giddiness, right? If you told me right now in 2018, my USFL book could be on the cover of Sports Illustrated or have a Bleacher Report excerpt, I would take the Bleacher Report excerpt. And that's crazy. That's just because for the links. The links. Yeah. And just the number of eyeballs and blah, blah, blah. And but also, wouldn't you say it's it's not even about the Sports Illustrated or the Bleacher Report or, or the one big thing. It's about hundreds. It's like literally about making contacts with radio and TV no, and print and... Internet and uh, and and uh, podcast. Wait, yes. but here's a question. I get that, right? Here's a question, though. I appear on 
let's say I appear in 60 sports talk radio shows across the country. I'm not talking about like the big ones like Rome or Coward. I'm talking about or Dan Patrick. I'm talking about like sports radio in Las Vegas, sports radio Tulsa, sports radio, right? Omaha. I do 60 of those shows. How many books am I selling? I'm being serious. How many books am I selling off those 60 shows? Don't know, but There's I believe, no way it's more than 300 books. It, okay, yes, but I, I've heard and I believe this that you have to hear about something several times before people maybe react. So maybe they hear it on that small station in Tulsa, mm-hmm. then they see it in Sports Illustrated and they're like, oh, this is must be something. Right. I've, I keep hearing about this one thing. Right. So it's like all those things actually do matter, sure. you know? Like, oh, someone put it on Facebook. That That's also like a recommendation. And, and now Instagram is crazy for books. Like, oh, yeah, you're all about Instagram. Yes, well, I mean, people follow their personalities and they do what they tell them if they they love this book you know they're going to want to read it too yeah you know if they buy these jeans they're going to want to buy those jeans the thing is that i like is that like um the truth of the matter is i mean you had your radio day for your book we do like the 30 interviews in a row i've had a ton of those by interview number 16 you're kind of dragging right and you're like uh and then but then you realize like i really do mean this like they're doing you the honor and you're having me on your show. I don't care. I put it on Twitter the other day. I will appear on anyone's show anywhere to talk about this book. I will do any podcast interview, any q and I don't give a shit. Like, I will appear on your thing. Number one, because you're doing me the honor of talking about something Absolutely. I worked on. And number two, like, this is my passion. Like, this book, these books always become my passion. I've been having dreams about the USFL the last few nights. Like, weird dreams about being attacked by football helmets and stuff. But still dreams. And like, you're going to have me on your show. I don't care if it's Tulsa or Mayo Pack. You know, I don't care. Like... I'll be happy to go on and talk about it. It's like an honor to go on. Do I know that it sells a ton of books? No. No, but but adding it all together, adding, having that attitude where you'll do anything and working hard and continuing that effort, whether it's on social media or radio or podcast or whatever, like all those things add up to sell books, not one particular thing. I also think like people respect hard work, right? And I, I really do like, I think people respond when they see you're a guy who's gonna bust his ass, who believes in a product so much that he will do anything. He's telling you, like I, I, I had a huge response on social media the other day where I was like, I have this book coming out. Like I just said, I will appear anywhere to talk about it. If you want me to come on your podcast, I will talk. Huge response. One of the biggest responses I've ever had. I don't think it's because people are so itching to talk about a 30-year-old football league. I think they respect the fact that guy's busting his ass to put his name behind something. Yeah, I agree with that. But I also think that um, being a good person and helping other people along the way, people want to help you back. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think you're very willing to help anybody, you know, big or small, coming up, established, whatever, you know, someone needs advice or, you know, wants to help get their product out or their book out, you know, you're you're willing to help them and I think people are willing to help you. I think it pays to be a nice person. So, Not to get something back, but it just does work that way. I sort of like one, a big thing in my life, I'm sure you've had this too, I think as you get older you get these things and they're actually true, is like um, when I realize that someone else's success doesn't take away from my success or someone doing, if like John Wertheim, our friend John Wertheim, is doing, is on 60 Minutes now, right? Like, there's zero reason for me to feel jealous about that. That's his success. You can both be successful at the same exactly. time. Exactly. Or Grant Wall like sells a million bucks. That has nothing to do with it. The me. rising tide raises all boats. Right. Yeah. It's a, but, but also just like, so I, what's... I can help you. It's not going to hurt me. Yeah, also like, 
the, the, the good thing is like, like Mirren Fader was on this podcast last week. We, you know, you know, like seeing her rise from like the Orange County Register to the Bleacher Report has been awesome. Like it's actually a thrill when you see that you help people and it actually kind of gives them a boost along the way and then they have success. I never used to be that way. I was never like, when I was at Sports Illustrated, when, certainly when I was at the Tennessean, it was all about me and I saw others doing well and I got jealous and blah, blah, blah. And then one day you're like, why are you being such an asshole? Right, you can just help people. Doesn't so, affect your success. So I know that uh, you're gonna be working tireless, tirelessly promoting this book. You're gonna be doing lots of interviews. Um, Let's hope. Let's book hope. promotion is you know very important. So important, you did a documentary called Book Whore. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know all is about offensive? it. Book Whore is the title? I told you, I, I think it's a little off, the but. Pimp? Yeah, so whoring and pimping, it's got a bad connotation. Mm-hmm. But anyway, not the point. Okay. So what I thought maybe, I know you're going to be telling a million stories. In fact, it's kind of our joke in the family that we hear you do so many interviews that literally if I could change my voice, I could do the interviews by the end because I've heard the stories over and over and over again. Emmett could tell every... Our kids could tell the stories. I mean, it just... It just becomes kind of a joke. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wonder if... Wait, you said to me the other day, you're like... I don't like when you walk around the house doing interviews. <laughs> That's what you said. Go do your interview, but we don't have to be part of it. Like, enjoy yourself. But I don't like when you walk around the house doing interviews. Actually, one of my favorite things you've ever made was the um, the video you made oh. of yourself doing like the 30 um, yeah, different sense. radio interviews on the day your books come out. So I know you're going to have that this time. You're going to do a million interviews and talk mm-hmm. about the book and all the stories, but this is your podcast. So I'm wondering if you could tell one story that's not going to make it somewhere else. It's just not maybe for all audiences or... Yours have related? Yeah, that's from this book. Like some story that's... We're not going to hear everywhere else. Hmm. I was interviewing this coach with the Chicago Blitz. Your favorite team, of course, because you have a Chicago Blitz bump, uh, sticker on your laptop. I do. Oh. On both my laptops. Oh, yeah. And um, he mentioned something awesome. He told me that, uh, this is like typical nugget. He told me that George Allen, who's the head coach of the Blitz and this notorious sort of kind of a cheater, great coach, but kind of a cheater. He said they used to send, he said before the first ever game in US of our history, Chicago Blitz were playing the Washington Federals. The Blitz sent two coaches dressed in USFL windbreakers to the Washington Federals practice with cameras, with video cameras, and told the Washington Federals uh, staff that they were from the league and they were just there to videotape the sessions to sort of get it, you know, for the league files and blah, blah, blah. So they videotaped, coaches from the Chicago Blitz videotaped the Washington Federals practices, went back to Chicago, broke down the tapes, knew every play they were going to run. And if you watch the first game, the first play, offensive play in the first game in US of our history, it's a sweep to Craig James on Washington and he just gets smothered by the Chicago defense. They killed Washington the other day. They knew every play they were going to run. They literally just disguised two coaches as USFL videographers. I love that story. So was it, did they figure it out or no? No, they never figured it out. They never knew. Never knew. And George Allen used to cheat like crazy. Like he would lather up his players with Vaseline, which you're not allowed to do so people can grab their uniforms. You'd mess with the temperatures in the locker rooms. You'd do everything you could do. Dirty tricks. Yeah, dirty. Turgy, but that's dirty. the stuff you loved about the USFL, right? That, yeah. that made it different than the NFL. I love like, there was a guy, um, also the 80s is the best era to write about. It's so excessive, you know, and also it's when we grew up, which makes yeah. it fun. And it's become like the new nostalgia money money point. I mean, the drugs are everywhere. There's like this 
wide receiver for the gamblers named Richard Johnson. He used to used to smoke a joint before every game. I've never heard of anyone doing that. You'd smoke a joint before every game. And they had another receiver named Vince Corville, who wasn't nearly as good. And this guy Vince told me that uh he just saw him having all this success. So he thought, I'm gonna try smoking a joint before a game. He'd never smoked pot before. So he smokes a joint, one of Richard Johnson's like grade A joints before a game. And he's playing this game the whole game. He's just overcome by paranoia. <laughs> he just thinks, why is the ball like so big? Maybe not the best time to try drugs no. for the first time. And it was the last time he ever did. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey. Oh, Casey, you seem upset. What's wrong? I'm annoyed at Sally. Why? She called you a narcissist. She what? She said you're the kind of person who uses his own podcast to promote a stupid book about a league no one would ever care about. I told her that's not true. Uh, did you hear about 503 Sports? Did you get me that Portland Breakers at? No, but as you know, 503 Sports is the kings of throwback sports merchandise. We're talking USFL, we're talking World Football League, we're talking XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, old school Portland State. Or, put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a Doug Williams Oklahoma Outlaws jersey, well dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like Casey Perlman and go to 503-sports.com, type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. Okay, so I have one more question, and it's really about the USFL, and it's really about Trump. Great. Okay, can you tell me why everything we need to know about Trump we could have seen in the USFL? I can. So, um, it's interesting. I'm not a Trump fan, but I did not write this book thinking about him as president. I wrote this book thinking of him as an owner. And But then you start going along and you're like, man, there, there are really a lot of parallels. So Trump basically... Well, people don't... People are who they are, you know? Sometimes people change. I disagree with that. I guess so, but... Okay. I don't agree with that at all, actually. I think some people do change. And there are people like who you went to high school with and you're like, God, that guy was such an asshole. And then you meet him at their reunion and you're like, oh, actually... I'm not talking about kids. I'm saying he was a grown-up in he's the only, NFL. True. He got into the league when he was about 35, I think. I think he was 37 when All he right. bought the job. Anyway, Go on. so, um, you know, he uh, he basically, he decides he's going to buy the New Jersey Generals after the first season. So in late 83, he's buying the team. And all he does is talk about how great the US of L is. Spring football is great. I love it. This is a great opportunity, blah, blah, blah. As soon as he gets in the league and he's officially the owner of the Generals, we need to move to fall. We have to move to fall. This league, if... If God wanted football in the spring, he wouldn't have invented baseball. That's his so-called brilliant quote. And it was all bullshit. Like, that's the thing. It was the whole thing for, for Donald Trump was a con to get in the NFL. He'd been rejected by the NFL in 1980 when he tried getting the Baltimore Colts. And he couldn't get in. And at the time, especially, the NFL was like the club. It was like old money. It was families like the Maras and the Roonies and these like American to Bartolo, like these American, big, rich, wealthy, noble families, and Trump wanted in, and he couldn't get in. So he bought into to the USFL with truly a plan that made some sense, which was, we're gonna switch to fall, take on the NFL directly. Either they're gonna absorb a bunch of our teams, and certainly they'll absorb mine, because my team will be in New York, and the Jets- Because I'm the best. Well, not even that. <laughs> like, he was gonna put a team in New York City, the Jets had just moved to New Jersey with the Giants, so there was a vacancy. He thought Manhattan would build a stadium. It's Donald Trump, blah, blah, blah. And he would have a New York NFL team. Or if the NFL didn't just absorb him, they would sue him in an antitrust case. So what ended up happening is 
Trump convinced the other owners that they need to sue the the NFL, and he was going to lead the lawsuit. Sue them for what? Uh, for uh, antitrust violations, basically monopolizing television. And the funny thing is, he had a case. The NFL was monopolizing television. There's no doubt about it. They really were. He had a case, but he botched the whole thing. Like number one, um, he was told not to hold the trial in New York. Like repeatedly warned, don't try to hold the trial in New York. It's not going to be a good place for us. You're not really well liked here. Our reputation is not great here. We can do it anywhere. We can file this case anywhere. No, he insisted in New York. He insisted on hiring Roy Cohen as their uh, as the lead lead attorney. Roy Cohen was famous for McCarthyism era. Um, Trump promised the other owners. He said, as soon as the NFL attorneys see that we hired Roy Cohn, they're going to want to settle. Well, that didn't happen at all. Um, they had a bunch of witnesses they were going to call. Trump insisted they should only call a few, including him. He was the number one witness for the NFL, for the USFL. The NFL fucking pounced immediately. Um, Trump came off. I interviewed one of the jurors. She's like, he came off so badly and so arrogant and so dismissive and such a bully that he made the NFL the underdog in that trial. The other thing is, just, I mean, I go on and on. Trump guaranteed the other owners he could get a fall TV deal for the USFL. Guaranteed it. Never was able to. Um, another similarity that just happened the other day when John McCain died. And, you know, Trump has basically stomped all over John McCain, especially since he's been ill. With the USFL, Donald Trump's number one sort of rival was a Canadian, the owner of the Tampa Bay Bandits named John Bassett, Canadian businessman. Uh, late into the USFL run, he also contracted brain cancer. Is contracted the right word for brain cancer? I don't think He was so. diagnosed with brain cancer. Yeah. And um, this was a guy standing in Trump's way. As soon as that happened, there was no empathy, no sympathy, no anything. Um, just pushed him out of the way, stomped all over him. And the thing that I love the most, the greatest parallel of all time, is when Donald Trump, 1985, Donald Trump signed Doug Flutie. Flutie Flakes. Out of Boston College. You love those Flutie Flakes. Who doesn't? You've never had them, have you? No. Yeah. He signed Doug but Flutie. it's fun to say Flutie Flakes. It is fun to say. That was a cereal when Doug Flutie was a Buffalo Bill. Anyway, all, I think all proceeds went to charity. So, so. Uh, he signs Doug Flutie out of Boston College, not because he's very good, but because he's a big name. And he promises everyone the other US of owners will pay for his contract. Like, okay, I'm going to sign Doug Flutie. It's the craziest freaking thing ever. And it was right around the time I was researching this book when the whole Mexico wall thing was like, he kept saying, Mexico, we're going to build, build a wall. Mexico's going to pay for it. And he kept saying back then, I'm going to sign Doug Flutie. The other owner's going to pay for it. There's just a million parallels, a million parallels. It's unbelievable between his behavior then and his behavior. He truly is an unchanged. You are right about that. He's unchanged. And I, I wanted more of it to come out in the campaign, but I understand why it didn't because it's really a leap in a way to be like there was this league 30 years ago and he did the same stuff and like you have to well I don't even think it's relevant because yeah. he showed who he was before yeah, he was elected and people elected him anyway so it, I don't think they needed a bigger parallel like he already did bad things and people voted for him so I sure would like that Donald Trump tweet yeah so anyone who's listening if you can find a way yeah. to get this book to Donald Trump and get him to tweet about it we owe you everything because that's what we're hoping for he can even misspell my name in fact, he probably won't miss my name. Yeah. People get the A. So, in conclusion. Yes, Catherine. Uh, I want to say that I really hope this book does well, and I'm going to tell you why. So we can eat? Well, of course, this is your livelihood, which is also my livelihood, but I feel like this is your baby. This is your baby more than any of your other book babies. It was your, like, passion project. You were told nobody cares by your like high school teacher, by your agent, nobody wanted this book. This is an amazing book. It's like 
everything that you've learned to do in all of your books, like you put it into this book. There's great stories. There's so many interesting things. Like this is such a fun read. I'm just, my fingers are crossed. And it's such an exciting time when your books come out. I pray for a good reception. I refresh your book on Amazon more than anybody else. And I'm just really hoping that you get a win for this one because it, it means more than the other ones. That's really nice. Well, we love you here. I mean, we're like a team. So a win for me is a win for you. Definitely. Right? Yes. Well, thanks for hosting, Catherine. Thank you for coming on your podcast today and letting me interview you. And I hope this didn't come off for listeners as uh, overly self-indulgent. I actually appreciate people sort of sitting through this and indulging. I hope there's some useful information. And you didn't know what I was going to ask you? I did not. I want to thank today's guest host, Catherine Perlman, for pinch hitting on two writers slinging yang. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at The Family Coach. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. My upcoming book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, is officially out on September 11th, but available everywhere for pre-order now. One can listen to Two Riders Singing Yang on Apple Music and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. So absurd, that's the USFL, the drugs.